Good afternoon. Uh, for those of you who may not know, I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, and I'm the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, and that uh, we are delighted to host the Princeton Colloquium on Public and International Affairs, the first annual Princeton Colloquium. It is my enormous pleasure to introduce the second uh, keynote speaker of the colloquium. Um, we knew uh, that Ambassador Dennis Ross would be a terrific person to address this colloquium as someone uh, who has spent almost a decade negotiating in the Middle East, shuttling back and forth on one of the hardest issues in international relations and uh, an issue that certainly both sides see in moral terms. Uh, he is someone who has dealt with the intersection of morality uh, and international relations firsthand. What we could not know, as much as I would like to take credit for it, was, is that he would be speaking to us at an absolutely critical moment uh, in the Mideast peace process when the uh, balance of power has changed in the Middle East and at a time, of course, uh, where the Palestinian uh, co political configuration has changed as well. So we're particularly uh, thrilled to have him. Let me tell you a few things about him, some things that you know, but some that you may not. Uh, you do, as, as I said, he spent more than 12 years uh, as, as the leader uh, of the U.S. Uh, negotiation team in the Middle East. Uh, he was the, the point man uh, for both the first Bush administration and the Clinton administration. Uh, and he was instrumental in helping the Israelis and the Palestinians reach the 1995 interim agreement and successfully brokered the Hebron Accord in 1997. He also facilitated the Israeli-Jordan peace treaty uh, and worked very hard to bring Israel and Syria together. He has been widely credited with managing an extraordinarily difficult process uh, through periods of crisis and stalemate and, of course, heartbreakingly uh, near successes. He is now finishing a book uh, on the Middle East peace that is titled, I love this title actually, The Missing Peace. Uh, it will be published this year. You should buy it. Uh, I'll say that because he can't, but uh, you should. Um, and he's t he, this is an account uh, from his vantage point uh, of efforts to negotiate peace and the key lessons uh, that he draws uh, from that experience. Uh, he concludes uh, that truth-telling uh, is an, an essential missing ingredient, and we may hear more about that uh, this afternoon. He is today the director and the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and he's also the first chairman of a New Jerusalem-based think tank, the Institute uh, for Jewish People Policy Planning. Many of you may have seen him on Fox News. He's the foreign affairs analyst there and a commentator in the Washington Post, the Times, and the Los Angeles Times. He worked very closely with three secretaries of state, uh, Madeleine Albright, James Baker, uh, and Warren Christopher. Prior uh, to his role as Special Middle East Coordinator, he was the director of the State Department's Policy Planning Office. That, of course, was uh, George Kennan's original position uh, in, during the first Bush administration. And again, since we identify him so closely with the Middle East process, uh, we, you may not know that he would, played a very prominent role 
in U.S. policy toward the former Soviet Union, unification of Germany and its integration into NATO, uh, arms control negotiations, uh, and the development of the first Gulf War coalition. The last thing I want to say is Ambassador Ross actually started, not at Princeton, alas, but at UCLA, uh, as a Soviet expert. Uh, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on Soviet decision-making and served as executive director of the Berkeley Stanford Program on Soviet International Behavior from 1984 to 1986. That was another era uh, in which uh, international relations was often painted uh, in very stark uh, moral terms. Uh, it seems far away now, but uh, that was still was, of course, the heart of the Cold War. It, one of the things uh, we've been hearing this morning uh, has been uh, the, um, the difficulty of reconciling the ideals of a moral foreign policy uh, with the practice uh, that allows us, uh, if not to achieve those ideals, at least to work toward them. I really can think of no one better uh, who, to address that issue uh, than Dennis Ross. Thank you. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Uh, you can admit it. You knew that Arafat and Abu Mazen would work us out at this time, and that's why you invited me. It was very clear. The title of, uh, of my talk is, Is Peace in the Middle East Still Possible? Now, I should clarify the terminology a little bit. I'm not going to be talking about, is peace and reconstruction possible in Iraq? I'm not going to be talking about, is peace possible with Iran at a time when Iran looks like it's meddling within Iraq, and at a time, interestingly enough, when there's been, I suspect, in fact, I believe, an interesting breakthrough in Iran in gas centrifuge technology, which means that they may be a lot closer to developing nuclear capabilities than was the case before. I'm not going to address that. What I am going to address is whether peace remains possible between Israelis and Arabs, and more specifically between Israelis and Palestinians. Now, it's not a morality play where one side is all right and the other is all wrong. And when you try to answer this question, I would also add, you probably approach your answer by having a certain view of the world. If you tend to be more optimistic, there's a likelihood that you'll answer this question a certain way. If you tend to be more pessimistic, you're likely to answer it a certain way. And to sort of put me in the context of how to think about this, let me tell you a little story, which some of you may have heard. There is a story that there was a man who had two sons. One was an incurable optimist. I mean, he would see the best in any situation, no matter what. And his other son was what I would describe as an impossible pessimist, meaning he saw absolutely the worst in any situation. Now, the father, being the father, cared about his sons, and he wanted each of them to have what I might describe as a more appropriate perspective. So he got them each a gift. The gift happened to be two barns. Now, for the optimist, there was a barn full of manure. And for the pessimist, there was a barn with a pony in it. Well, lo and behold, the pessimist goes up to the barn, opens the door, sees the pony, and goes, oh, my God, a pony. Think of all the manure I'm going to have to shovel. The optimist goes and opens the door and looks at the manure, and he says, oh, boy, with all that manure, there's got to be a pony in there someplace. 
Now, I see Mike McCurry over there, and I'm telling this story because Mike obviously had a number of incarnations as press secretary in the State Department and then as the President's press secretary. And Mike knows from more than one occasion where I would come in and I would explain to the President, that may look like there's a lot of manure there, but trust me, there's a pony in there. Now, the question you might have of me today is, is there a pony in the manure there today? And my answer to you is a very small pony. And what I want to do is talk to you about why there may be a very small pony. And the best way to do that is by describing, first, why is the situation so grim today? Second, why might there be a moment? And third, what is it that we need to do about it? Now, first, why is it so grim? If you look at the situation between Israelis and Palestinians, the one thing that is overwhelming right now is that neither believes they have a partner for peace. Both have lost faith in peacemaking. Note the word I used. I used the word faith. I didn't use the word confidence. I didn't use the word trust. I used faith. This is now a question of belief. They have lost faith that they have a partner for peacemaking. And I'm using it in a collective sense. And when I say they, I don't mean individual leaders. I mean publics. I mean societies. On the Israeli side, the reason they lost faith is because of the last two and a half years of an intifada, which grew out of a certain, a certain reality. Israelis believe that they had the most forthcoming government in their history that was prepared to contemplate the kinds of concessions that previously had been unimaginable. And the response to that government was not a counterproposal, was not no, but we'll talk about it. It was violence. Now, what convinced the Israeli public that, in fact, they didn't have a partner was not only the violence. It was the rejection of the Clinton ideas. There's a confusion about what we did at Camp David and what we did with the Clinton ideas. Camp David was in July of 2000. The Clinton ideas were presented in December of 2000. In the Clinton ideas, we basically presented the following to the Palestinians. You'll be able to read about this all in my book, but now I'll just give you a snippet of it. The Palestinians would have had an independent state in which they would have had 97% of the territory. In fact, it was 100% of Gaza, and it was a net 97% of the West Bank. They would have had all the Arab neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, meaning all of Arab East Jerusalem would have been the capital for that state. They would have, they would have had their own independent borders without an Israeli presence on their borders. And they would have had the right of return for Palestinian refugees to their own state, but not to Israel. This is a two-state solution, after all. Right of return to their state made perfect sense. Right of return to Israel meant you didn't want Israel. Now, they would have also had a $30 billion fund for compensation or repatriation, resettlement, rehabilitation of refugees. Now, when Arafat said no to this, the Israeli public's reaction was, well, if he can't say yes to that, it means he can't say yes to anything. And it means the violence is not a tactic to improve the Palestinian negotiating position. It is instead about our existence. It's against us. Because of that, the Israeli public believes they don't have a partner, certainly as long as he is the leader of the Palestinians. Now, it might be grim, but it might not be as grim as I'm about to describe it if the Palestinians had a different view, but they don't. Their view is a parallel view. The Palestinians also believe they don't have a partner. Why? Well, from their standpoint, they looked at Oslo, and they said Oslo was supposed to end Israeli control, end occupation, and it seemed to be cementing 
Israeli control. Why? Because of the Intifada. The Israelis look at the Intifada as something that the Palestinians imposed on them. The Palestinians look at it as, yes, we use violence, but the Israeli response to the violence was totally disproportionate. For Palestinians, the use of the Israeli military power against them, the way it has been used, the infliction of casualties, the way they have been inflicted, the collective punishment that has been applied in Palestinian eyes means that they believe the Israelis don't look at them as being real human beings. That is something embedded now in Palestinian psychology. So they feel, from their standpoint, they really don't have a partner, especially with this Israeli government. They see settlement activity ongoing, and they say uh, further proof that the purpose of the Israelis is to always preserve their control over us. Now, if that weren't bad enough, they don't seem to be aware of what was presented to them. I often hear that the reason for Israeli occupation, the reason for the violence in the eyes of Palestinians is because of Israeli occupation. And yet the Palestinian public doesn't seem to be aware of the fact that occupation could have ended through negotiations, given what we put on the table in 2000. Now, one of the reasons they don't seem to be aware of it is because Yasser Arafat described what we presented in terms that bears no relationship to what we presented. He said he was offered Bantustans, Cantons, small Palestinian islands in an Israeli sea. Well, he was offered 97% of the territory, hardly Cantons. When he was offered the 97%, there was a principle guiding the 97%, which was contiguity to ensure that the Palestinian landmass had an integrity to it. He said he wasn't offered Arab East Jerusalem, but he was offered Arab East Jerusalem. He said he wouldn't have independent borders, but he would have had independent borders. I often think that if the deal that we were offering was so bad, why did he have to lie about it? Why did he have to distort it so fundamentally? I suspect because he couldn't tell the truth to his public because they would have wondered why are they suffering the way they are suffering. Effectively, what you have is a Palestinian public that believes they don't have a partner and the Israeli public which believes they don't have a partner. Now, when I say it that way, the conclusion you might draw is, well, why does he even think that there's a toy pony in there? Why does he think there's any moment right now? By the way, you'll note that when I pose questions, I usually can answer them. <laughs> How I do with your questions is a different issue. I say there's a moment right now because I also feel right now among Israelis and Palestinians and certainly among Prime Minister Sharon and the Prime Minister-designate on the Palestinian side, there is a very strong recognition that enough already, that the situation is a disaster. On the Israeli side, Prime Minister Sharon has said it publicly now. He understands that there's a relationship between the rather dire economic circumstances that the Israelis have, third year in a row where there's an absolute decline in economic performance, where per capita income has dropped, according to some accounts, by $3,000 a year over the last three years. There's a direct correlation between the economic reality and the ongoing conflict with the Palestinians. It doesn't mean you have to end the war, but it means you really have to end the war process. So from an Israeli standpoint, for economic reasons, and from the IDF standpoint, being in every Palestinian city in the West Bank except Jericho is not something the IDF wants to do. This is a reserve army. This is not wonderful for morale. This is a, an army that is basically taken out of its normal training cycles. 
And there's a recognition. You stay in the cities, you're going to create a pool of hostility for a long time to come among Palestinians. So on the Israeli side, there's a recognition that it's important to bring this to an end if you can. Underscore the words, if you can. Because the IDF is not going to pull out of Palestinian cities if the consequence of pulling out of Palestinian cities is a lot of dead Israelis because you have suicide bombers who go into Israel immediately upon the conclusion or following that pullout. On the Palestinian side, in the case of Abu Mazen in particular, but not only Abu Mazen, there is a recognition that this is a complete disaster for the Palestinians. They've lost over 2,000 people in the last 2,000 years, 2,000 dead. They have 15 times that many who have been wounded. 70% of the Palestinian population today is living under the poverty line. 580 schools are closed because you can't get from one place to the other. This is a complete disaster for Palestinians, and Abu Mazen, among others, has been saying it's a complete disaster for us. So there is, interestingly enough, between the Israeli government and what is the emerging Palestinian government, a convergence on the near term, meaning a recognition that they've got to end the war process and get back to a peace process. Now, what is driving it on the Palestinian side is something actually even deeper than what I've just described. What is driving it on the Palestinian side is the emergence of a genuine reform movement, which in my mind is potentially a very significant, even historic development for the Palestinians. What makes it significant for me is really a couple of considerations. One consideration is that it's entirely homegrown. You read a lot about it's the international community that is pressuring for Abu Mazen to be prime minister. That's all true. But that's not what produced the reform movement. The reform movement on the Palestinian side emerged at a point when nobody expected it to. You may recall a year ago, the Israelis, after six suicide bombs in six days, the last one of which was on the first night of Passover at the Park Hotel in Netanya, the Israelis went into the West Bank. They launched something called Operation Defensive Shield. This is when Janine took place. They went in and they cleaned every city out. In the aftermath of it, after seven weeks, there was a high expectation that there would be enormous anger among Palestinians against Israelis. And I won't say there wasn't anger, but the overriding impulse in the aftermath of this was not the focus on the Israelis. Instead, it was the focus on the issue of reform. Palestinians knew a lot would have to be rebuilt, and what they did not want was to rebuild the rot. And they knew the Palestinian Authority was characterized completely by rot. Now, they weren't necessarily desirous of confronting Arafat directly because he is still an icon, but they also knew he wasn't the pathway to a future. He was a reflection of the past. The significance of the Palestinian reform movement not only being authentic, but in a sense reflecting a desire for responsibility is the second major reason I consider this to be important. Arafat has led the Palestinian movement since 1969. He formed Fatah four years earlier. He was involved in developing a movement even in the early 60s. But basically, he's been the leader since 1969. He made being a victim not just a condition, but a strategy. The Palestinians have been victims. They are victims. But that's a condition. It can't be a strategy. But he made it a strategy. Now, the significance of being using a strategy that is built, built upon being a victim is that it means you're never responsible. You're never at fault. You never made a mistake. It's always up to somebody else. 
You can't possibly learn from the past because it's always up to somebody else to do. As long as the Palestinian strategy is based upon being a victim, nothing is going to be possible because Palestinians will never make a decision for which they're accountable for. And that was the problem fundamentally with Arafat. And that was the problem fundamentally with the movement. Now, along comes the development of a reformist instinct. And what is it driven by more than anything else? A recognition that Palestinians have to be responsible. This is potentially, in my mind, the most historic development that we see taking place right now. Now, that's the good news. I'm going to give you one other piece of what is potentially good news, and that is the emergence of a prime minister who signifies by definition that all power isn't going to reside in Yasser Arafat's hands. Now, when we look at the last five weeks of what's going on between Abu Mazen, who was the designated prime minister and will be, in all likelihood, approved by the Palestinian Legislative Council on either Sunday or Monday, again, proving the insightfulness that you had in terms of timing. If we look at this five-week period where he's tried to put together a government and where Arafat has resisted him every step of the way, you see what I would describe as a good news, bad news situation, or again, using our analogy of the kid who's the pessimist and the kid who's the optimist, the one who sees the manure and the one who sees the pony, I can give you some signs of the, of the pony with Abu Mazen. He held out for five weeks to ensure that critical people he felt had to be appointed would, in fact, be appointed. And he was prepared to resign. This week, he was prepared to resign if he didn't get the people he felt were essential. That's the good news. Because it says something also about his intentions. What he was not going to do was assume this position where he had responsibility but no authority. Because he knows a lot is riding on it. Now the bad news. Arafat, I was once asked about him, I was asked, if there was one word you would use to describe him, what would that one word be? And everybody assumed that I would use the word survivor. It's not my word. My word is maneuver. He's a classic maneuver. Now, he spent the last five weeks maneuvering. And look at how he's maneuvered. He didn't focus on the people in the cabinet who were the, the manifestations of reform. One of the people who's been appointed is a guy named Nabil Amer who last summer wrote an open letter that was first printed in the, an Arabic paper in London called Al-Hayat and then reprinted in a local Palestinian paper called Al-Hayat Al-Jadida. And in it, he outlined an extensive indictment of Arafat and all of his failings. Internally, corruption, the people he brought with him, what their purposes were. One of his charges included, why do you always accept, why do you always reject first what we know we have to accept later, and he was citing the Clinton ideas. He made no effort to go after Nabil Amr. Instead, he focused on Mohammed Dahlan, the guy who uh, Abu Mazen wanted to put in charge of security. Now, why did he do that? He did it because what he wanted to do is focus on the issue of security as a way of saying, look, Abu Mazen is focused on the Israeli agenda, not on our agenda. He's focused on making arrests to serve the Israeli interests, not Palestinian needs. So this was a way to put Abu Mazen Akhlan on the defensive, but also show he was the guy watching out for Palestinian interests. Moreover, he holds out until the last possible minute, making certain that if there's any person internationally who didn't call him asking him to work out a compromise, 
it was probably only President Bush. Why did he do that? Oh, again, vintage Arafat, to demonstrate that nothing could be done without him. So the bad news in this five-week period is that Yasser Arafat is there, and he will pull every conceivable trick that he can to try to limit what Abu Mazen can do. And Abu Mazen will have to do things, because as I said, you're not going to get the Israelis to pull out of the cities if as soon as they pull out of the cities, you're going to have dead Israelis. Now, what can be done now to help the reformers, to help Abu Mazen? Well, several things. First, the Israelis will have to help. Second, the Arabs will have to help. And third, we will have to help. Now, how can the Israelis help? The Israelis have to put Abu Mazen in a position where he is able to demonstrate he delivers. He is going to have to crack down on those who believe that violence is the best way to ensure there'll never be peaceful coexistence. But when he does that, he's got to show that life gets better. He has to show his way works, that the suffering stops, that Palestinians can breathe again, that suddenly you can move people in goods, that suddenly you can reopen schools, that at least some people can begin to work again in Israel, that at least VIPs can begin to travel all over without constraint and restriction, and that at least some of the prisoners who've been taken by the Israelis can also be released. Israelis hold over 5,000 prisoners, Palestinian prisoners right now. He has to show that when it comes to life getting better, he has an answer. Because Palestinian expectations today, at least among the public, not among the reformers, but among the public, are very low. They have no faith in Arafat, but they also have no reason to have any faith in Abu Mazen. He has to show, unlike Arafat, what he does works. On the quality of life issues, absolutely. But he also has to show that he can affect what the Israelis are doing in terms of settlement activity in which Palestinians perceive that land that they consider to be theirs is being taken by the Israelis. So if the Israelis will cut him slack, if the Israelis will, in fact, reduce the number of checkpoints, if they will ease their controls, if they will allow people to work again, if they will release some of the prisoners, if they will close down the illegal settler outposts, the caravans, this will make a big difference for Abu Mazen. It doesn't mean they have to do it all at once, and it doesn't mean they have to do it unilaterally. In fact, I don't, I'm not in favor of them doing it unilaterally. It ought to be done as part of a dialogue and a set of understandings with the Palestinians, where both sides undertake certain obligations and both sides perform. But that's what the Israelis can do. What can the Arabs do? Well, for one thing, the Arabs have to realize that it, there's no such thing as a diplomatic free lunch. Bear in mind that Arab leaders, first with Secretary Powell and later when they come to Washington, as undoubtedly they will, are going to say, you owe us. Our publics are, are angry. We're on the defensive. You owe us. You have to show you are as interested in the issues that matter to us, meaning peace and the Palestinians, as you have been in terms of your own agenda with regard to carrying out war against Iraq. We are in a difficult position. We acquiesced in what you did. You owe us. Now, the response to that should be, you also owe us. You want us to invest in trying to defuse the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? We're prepared. This should be the answer. We are prepared to invest in a serious way, not with a slogan. But if we're not prepared to do it with a slogan, you can't do it with a slogan either. 
you have to step up to the plate. You have to assume your responsibilities. And what are those responsibilities? There are several. The Arab world, let's start with what I would call the Arab Troika, which is Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. They have to do these things not only in the shadows. The Egyptians in particular exerted a lot of leverage to get this deal done between Abu Mazen and Abu Allah. But it's all done privately. They have to be in public. But they have to do more than just be in public. They have to be prepared to do something that wasn't done throughout the whole Oslo period, either by Arafat or by anyone in the Arab world. And that is, in my mind, and this is what I would propose, there should be a joint manifesto between the Arab leaders and Abu Mazen. The joint manifesto should be very clear. It should state and outline a political compact. It should make clear what the Palestinians stand for. It should be clear that they are not going to surrender their cause. They will pursue their cause. And their cause is an independent state that resides next to, not in place of Israel. And when they explain this cause and that they won't sacrifice it and that it's sacrosanct, they should also say it can only be pursued in legitimate ways, not in illegitimate ways. The fact of the matter is no Palestinian state is going to be born of violence. It's not going to happen. But if the Arab world and the Palestinians are prepared to state they won't give up their cause, but they will regard anyone who pursues the cause through means of violence or anyone who is prepared to try to subvert or work against the cause and peaceful coexistence through terror and violence, anyone who does that will be treated as an enemy of the cause because it's wrong. Bear in mind that in, out, in eight years of the Oslo process, Yasser Arafat from time to time would make serious arrests. There's no question that he did. And he didn't always simply turn around and release them as soon as we weren't paying attention. The so-called revolving, revolving door did exist from time to time. But the fact is, sometimes he arrested and sometimes he held the people there. Not once in eight years of Oslo did he ever make an arrest where he said what they did was wrong. Not once. Not once did he discredit what they did by saying, you went and you killed Israelis and it's not acceptable to us. He was always making the arrests because he was under pressure from us or he was under pressure from the Israelis. Never because it was Palestinian interests that required it. Never because he was going to discredit those who did it. Never because on September 9, 1993, he'd written a letter to Prime Minister Rabin in which he renounced terror and violence. Not once. If you're going to build a genuine peace process and produce an end of conflict, one of the things you're going to have to do is make it clear there's a legitimate way to pursue the cause and there's an illegitimate way to pursue the cause. And those who pursue it illegitimately are enemies of the cause. Now, asking Abu Mazen to do that is one thing. Making it easier for him to do it by having an Arab umbrella of support is essential. This is the most important Arab responsibility. And when they say we owe them, this is what we tell them they owe us and they owe this process and they owe the Palestinians. But that's not the only thing they owe the Palestinians. They need to embrace the prime minister publicly, something they still haven't done. They've done it privately. They need to invest in the Palestinian Authority with money. Do you realize that over the course of the Oslo period, from the beginning of Oslo until now, Norway has given more money to the Palestinian Authority than the country that has given the most amount of money from the Arab world, which is Saudi Arabia. Is this a reflection of a commitment to the Palestinian cause? Now, when you are producing a leadership that is determined to reform themselves, there's no longer the excuse. We used to hear the excuse. 
Well, with Arafat, we don't know where the money goes, as if they were powerless to affect what he did with the money. Well, now there's not that excuse because there's a structure of transparency and accountability. If they believe in the Palestinian cause, this is a time to use an old American phrase, put your money where your mouth is. There's one other thing that the Arabs have to do, and this is designed to make it easier for the Israelis to respond to the Palestinians. If you say you are committed to normalization with Israel, which, by the way, was the essence of the Abdullah Initiative, Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia a year ago, offered an initiative in which he promised full normalization with Israel once Israel had withdrawn from all the territories. Now, that initiative was adopted by the Arab League. It would have been far more compelling as an initiative if the day it was adopted in Beirut hadn't been the same day as the Park Hotel bombing in Netanya, the very same day. And the same day that it was adopted in Beirut, Hamas took credit for the bombing, the Park Hotel bombing in Netanya on the first night of Passover. And there wasn't a single word of condemnation out of the Arab League or by any participant in the Arab League not one word of condemnation. So how believable for an Israeli audience is this initiative that was launched with such fanfare? If as soon as you launch this initiative and you promise normalization, there's a bombing which happened to be the sixth in six days and it comes on the first night of Passover, so it affects everybody, and you can't say one word, even though Hamas deliberately takes credit for it in, in Beirut where you have the meeting take place. We're going to ask the Palestinians to assume responsibilities. We're going to ask the Israelis to assume responsibilities. We're going to ask the Arabs to assume responsibilities. And we, too, have responsibilities. What we can do right now is work with the Israelis and the Palestinians to help shape and help produce the very understandings that are going to be required. The most important thing right now is what they say to each other and what they agree with each other. And they are talking to each other right now. If we have Israeli-Palestinian understandings on what each side is going to do and when they're going to do them, then the roadmap, which you may have heard about, can be very useful, not because it's a guide to action. The roadmap was put together by the US, Russia, the EU, and the UN. It has 52 paragraphs. As one Palestinian friend of mine said, it has 208 points. Now, I can tell you, the problem with the roadmap today is that the 208 points are viewed one way by the Palestinians and a completely different way by the Israelis. The title of the roadmap is a performance-based roadmap. Given the gap in interpretation on every single point, it is not a performance-based roadmap. It is a basis on which to debate performance, not a basis on which to carry out performance. It can be extremely useful as a cover for the Palestinians in particular, as a justification for their talking, for Abu Mazen talking to the Israelis. It can be extremely useful as a backdrop to their negotiations. It can be extremely useful as the direction, a political horizon to justify what may be difficult steps in particular for the Palestinians up front. But if it doesn't have understandings between the Israelis and the Palestinians, I don't see how it gets launched. We are supposed to unveil it as soon as Abu Mazen's government is in fact put together announced, which will be probably next week. What does it mean? You unveil it, then what? You'll have heightened expectations. If you don't help put together a set of understandings between the Israelis and the Palestinians, this won't get launched. 
The other reason we have to help them do it is to be sure that the understandings are understood the same way by both sides. Let me illustrate what I mean. And unfortunately, I say this with far too much experience. Right now, the Israelis will insist that the Palestinians confront Hamas, as an example, as a way of demonstrating it's going to be a new day. The Palestinian definition of confronting Hamas will be very different than the Israeli definition of confronting Hamas. The Palestinians will insist not only on certain steps that the Palestinians will take, that the Israelis will take to ease Palestinian life, but also to dismantle illegal settlement or settler outposts. Here again, the Palestinian definition of that will be very different from the Israeli definition of it. We have to be certain of two things, that when they use the same words, they understand the same things by them. We also have to be very clear on what the expectations on each side are for what will happen and when it will happen. And lastly, we have to be very clear with both sides that if they make commitments, we're going to hold them accountable. If there's one lesson from the past, and I've drawn a large number, which I'm not going into now, but if there's one lesson from the past that is unmistakable, it's that in the absence of accountability, in the absence of any consequence for unfulfilled obligations, you guarantee that there will continue to be unfulfilled obligations. So learning the lesson from the past, one thing now is to help the Palestinians and Israelis work out understandings on what they will do and when they will do it and holding them accountable to what it is they agree to. If we do that, as I said, the roadmap can become very useful. Now, everything I've just described reflects, in effect, a limited moment. Limited not only because of what's available, but also, in effect, what we can be thinking about that's achievable. Some people may say in response to what I've just said, well, you set your sights too low because all you're really focused on is ending a war process and getting back to a peace process. You're, in effect, dealing only with diffusing the conflict, not ending the conflict. Believe me, if I thought that we could end the conflict tomorrow, that's where my focus would be. But I started by talking about the absence of faith on each side. Think about where we are today. Abu Mazen has to build his authority among Palestinians. He doesn't have it. He has it among the reformers who are backing him, but he doesn't have it in Palestinian society. The way he builds his authority is by showing he can produce, by showing he can deliver. Do you think that before he builds his authority, he can make concessions on the issues that go to the heart of self-definition and identity? Do you think that if he did, Arafat would be mute? He would be out there immediately saying, he's betraying the cause. He's conceding what I wouldn't. You cannot ask him to concede on borders or Jerusalem or on refugees before he has any authority. He can't do it. And at this point, Sharon isn't about to do it. He also doesn't know if he has a Palestinian partner. He knows, in the case of Abu Mazen, this may be somebody with a good intention. But here again, recognize something else. The convergence of interest that exists between the two sides today is in the near term relating to changing the situation, getting away from a war process back to a peace process, being able to breathe again, stopping the suffering, stopping the pain, stopping the victims. It isn't on the end game. Don't expect Abu Mazen to suddenly relax his view of what the Palestinians require on borders, on statehood, on Jerusalem, or even on refugees. He's not going to do that up front. And Ariel Sharon has made it very clear he's not going to negotiate with himself. 
So if you focus on those issues, you're going to find neither side can respond. Now, some will then say, well, just impose it then. You know, there's no mystery what the outcome is going to be. You guys put it together. You're the author of the Clinton ideas. It reflected your best judgment of what each side could live with. It's true that there may be no mystery on the outcome, but there's also no such thing as imposing peace. We can no more impose peace than we can impose democracy. You create the conditions for democracy. You create the conditions for peace. You have to have both sides prepared to invest in it and defend it and to stand up to those who will oppose you. On the Palestinian side in particular, the one thing that would be a colossal mistake for us to do would be to try to impose at the very moment when you have a reform movement that recognizes the need for Palestinians to assume responsibility. Imposition relieves them of the responsibility. In the end, we don't want to do something that may sound good for a couple of weeks and then come back and, in a sense, betray everything we're trying to do. The important thing right now is to approach what is possible realistically. I don't want to set the sights too low. I didn't spend all the years negotiating that I did because I want to set the sights too low. But I don't want to set the sights in a way that guarantees failure either. The last thing we need at this point, right when there might be a moment, is an initiative that is guaranteed to fail. Because all that will do is further erode any sense of belief that peace is possible it will add to the cynicism, which is already too high. We have to restore faith, not destroy it. In the end, I remain a believer. In the end, I believe there isn't an alternative. In the end, I actually believe both sides ultimately recognize there is no alternative. They've spent the last two and a half years looking at what the alternative is, and it's been destructive to both sides, more destructive to the Palestinians, because two and a half years ago, they were this close to achieving their aspirations. And where are they today? But the Israelis have paid a terrible price, too. This is a case where both sides are losers, not winners right now. And in the end, I believe there is a way to make them both winners. And there is a way for this non-morality play to work out that both sides win instead of continuing to lose. I'll stop there. Ross has agreed to take questions, and I'm going to take the prerogative of the chair and ask the first one. Uh, we heard uh, this morning that uh, the, the uh, administration's focus on a world of good and evil, an axis of evil, if you're not with us, you're against us, uh, had uh, locked it into a Manichaean worldview in which Arafat fell on one side, but then Sharon necessarily fell uh, fell on the other, so that if Arafat was a terrorist, then Sharon had to be a man of peace. What's your reaction to that comment and how difficult it then implies it will be for this administration to put the kind of necessary pressure on Sharon that you argue is necessary? I guess I'd make several points in response. The first point would be to understand why the administration evolved the way it did. I mean, its first instinct when it came in was to disengage from this issue. It was too hard. They looked at what we had done. They said, gee, if, you, if it didn't work with everything you were trying to do, how could it possibly work for anybody else? 
you had Barack to work with, we're going to have a very different kind of government to work with, you, you made the mistake of indulging Arafat too much, we're just not going to deal with him. Now, interestingly enough, they were prepared to start dealing with him. If you go back to August of, of 2001, uh, the administration at that point made certain promises to the, to the Saudis about what we were prepared to do. This is when the first commitment to Palestinian statehood emerged. And by the way, bear in mind something very interesting. When I described the Clinton ideas, they were not formal American policy. They represented what we put on the table as our best judgment of what it would take to end the conflict. But we never made it a formal part of American policy, and we made it clear that if it wasn't accepted, we would withdraw it, which we did. It is the Bush administration that made uh, acceptance of Palestinian statehood a condition of American policy. Now, they did this actually, at least in private, in the summer of 2001. The president was going to meet Arafat before September 11th took place at the UN. So there was a certain pathway they were on. September 11th comes along. And then every time Sharon would come to see the president in Washington, there would be a suicide bombing. So for President Bush, he looked at this and he said, it's pretty hard to say that what they're facing is different than what we faced. And literally every time he came to see him, this is what took place. Now the view of Arafat gradually changed because there was something called the Korean A, which was a ship smuggled in from the Iranians, which he denied knowing anything about. I can just tell you as an aside from my own experience, when I was asked about this at the time, when I used to meet with Arafat, which I probably spent more time with him than any non-Palestinian, one thing that was very clear, people around him would have to come to him to get airplane tickets. So the idea that this very close aide of his Shabaki would spend $15 million of Arafat's money, because he always referred to it as his money, and he wouldn't know about it, strains the bounds of credulity just a little bit. <laughs> In any case, the, the acts of terror that took place when Sharon was there lying to the president in a letter about Korean A. Uh, these things came to convince this administration that you couldn't deal with Arafat, and that's what ultimately led to the June 24 speech. In terms of Sharon, I don't think it's the case that they say, well, Arafat is the bad guy and Sharon is the good guy. But there has been a feeling that what Sharon was contending with was very similar to what we were contending with, number one. Number two, when I look at the history of this conflict, I am struck by a certain reality. I am struck by the reality that when the Israeli public believes that they have a partner for peace, they're prepared to stretch beyond limits that are expected. And I'll give you two examples. One is what Moshe Dayan said uh, before Sadat came to Jerusalem. I don't mean right on the eve, but the year before he came. He said, if I have a choice of peace with Egypt or holding Sharm el-Sheikh, I choose to, have, to hold Sharm el-Sheikh. Well, Sadat comes to Jerusalem, and suddenly Sharm el-Sheikh was expendable, and Yamit, which was supposedly Menachem Begin's retirement home in the Sinai, was also expendable. Full withdrawal from the Sinai, which was not predicted by most people in advance, became something accepted by the vast majority of Israelis. Fast forward to the period after Camp David. After Camp David, uh, the Israeli press, which is, has an interesting imagination at times, engaged in what can only be described as an extraordinary degree of exaggeration of, over what we had actually put on the table at Camp David. We had put on at Camp David, not what I described in terms of the Clinton ideas. At Camp David, when it came to two issues, we put 92% of the territory would go to the Palestinians. Uh, and the, at that time, the Israeli press was saying 98, 99%. Uh, we, at that time, 
had taken a more restrictive view of Jerusalem, and we said the outer neighborhoods, the outer Palestinian neighborhoods, would become sovereign Palestinian territory, but the inner neighborhoods of Jerusalem would not. But the Israeli press at the time said anything that's Arab will be Palestinian. At Camp David, we talked about refugees, but we never put a proposal on the table. Barack, at one point, put on the table 7,000 refugees could return to Israel over, seven, over 15 years. Not 7,000 per year, 7,000 over 15 years. The Israeli press, the Israeli press said 300,000 Palestinian refugees would return. Now, why do I tell you the story? I happened to have dinner when I was out there three weeks after Camp David with a leading group of Likudniks who were in, at that time in total despair because it's over. They bought everything that was in the Israeli press. They said the Israeli public is not opposing it. Uh, it's going to be over. It's going to happen. Now, this is before the Intifada. Their argument was the Israeli public wants this over. They believe there is a Palestinian partner, so it's going to be over. The point here is, in effect, when it comes to Sharon, and I think, by the way, this is the administration's view, which is the reason for giving you all this background. I think they believe that the Palestinians have never put Sharon to the test. They put him to the test by stopping the violence. If the violence stops, the onus shifts to Sharon. And that's what I think the administration is, uh, that's how they're prepared to engage with him. And I think that's the response, that if they may see that what Arafat has done is at a minimum acquiescent terror, and I think they believe that he did more than simply acquiescent terror, and they believe that Sharon, if in fact faced with a real partner, will have no choice but to respond. The floor is open. If you'll just identify yourself, please, for the webcast. Go ahead, My name is Arch Davis. Um, I have an 1802 map of a major county in the Midwest where I grew up that shows a third of that county was owned by my ancestors. Um, I live up in New Jersey. And, uh, um, your position, which I call the small point, on this conflict is that uh, there's to me, though, that a lot of people, which is the thing back, and that's an increasing position. So, um, what is the possibility of settlement in other Arab countries, uh, particularly now that we own Iraq, uh, with $30 billion um, of fund? Isn't the land of Palestine too small for two countries? You know, um, there was a time at the beginning of the Zionist movement when uh, even Theodore Herzl didn't feel necessarily that the area of biblical Palestine was necessarily critical to the Zionist movement, and he was open to the idea of having them having this the Zionist need met by uh, moving to Uganda. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately. Nobody in the Zionist movement was prepared to accept anything but biblical Palestine. If you ask a Palestinian where are they going to live, they're going to want to say they want to live in what is a state of Palestine, and it's going to have to be there. Is it possible to create two states there? Yes, I think it's possible to create two states there. The truth is it's going to require cooperation. It's going to require serious economic investment. But the Palestinians as a people... Uh, are people who are not only extraordinarily talented, 
But if you look at them, they are much more literate than most of the others in the Middle East. They have the highest percentage of advanced degrees and PhDs than anybody else in the Arab world. Uh, I believe that, in fact, if there's a serious commitment to creating a two-state solution, you will have it. There is a small percentage of Palestinians who reject the very idea of Israel. One of the things that's required, as I was getting at in terms of the Arabs, is making clear that those who reject Israel's right to be there and are determined to use violence to pursue that aim are enemies of the Palestinian cause, because they surely are. They have subverted Palestinian interests more than anyone else. They have made Palestinians pay more than anybody else. So I think the answer is to accept that you're going to that the only the only legitimate outcome, the only feasible outcome, is a two-state solution. It isn't to try to put the Palestinians elsewhere. Uh, Nils Mueller, graduate student at the Woodrow Wilson School. Um, thank you for your presentation, uh, Ambassador Ross. It was very informative. Um, I, I guess one of the most frustrating things for me um, as I think about policy solutions to the problem is that it seems like whenever any progress is made, um, and we just saw this the other day, you, it takes one person, a small cadre of people, right. suicide bomber, to derail the whole process. And so even if you have the goodwill from Abu Mazen, even if you have the reformers in place, um, the reaction from the Israelis and the Americans every time um, there is a suicide bomber is to pull back and collect a punishment and blame everybody and, and, and stop the progress. And it seems to me that if instead in response to the suicide bombers and the extremists and the spoilers was to try to keep moving and make them irrelevant, um, it might change the dynamic of of the process. Um, so I wonder if you could comment on that, and then I'll just sneak in another question, um, which is that uh, it, just about the interests of Arab governments. And um, there's an argument made that uh, that it's in a lot of the government's interest, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, to use the Palestinian issue uh, to deflect attention away from a lot of domestic issues. So um, perhaps you could address that as well. Thank you. You know, I, there were times in the past when there were acts of terror and it didn't derail the process. It is true that Yitzhak Rabin said we're going to fight terror as if there's no peace process and we're going to pursue peace as if there were no terror. It was a play on words of what Ben-Gurion had said about the British in the white paper during World War II. The, the key thing is that if the Palestinians were making it unmistakably clear that they were acting to delegitimize violence, even if they weren't fully successful in terms of stopping all the acts, I suspect you would find that the Israelis would, in fact, continue with the process. The problem has been, as I said, the non-delegitimization of those who carry out violence. As long as you make it legitimate to carry out violence, then, in a sense, you're making it part of the landscape. As long as you avoid your responsibility, then, in a sense, you're betraying being a partner. How can you be a partner if, on the one hand, yes, you'll talk peace, but on the other hand, you'll acquiesce in those who will go kill Israelis, who will be allowed to use your territory with impunity to do that? That's the critical measure. You know, we, we used to always say 100 percent. You didn't have to have 100 percent results. You had to have 100 percent effort. But the reality is it's what I call the delegitimization of the violence as a card, as a tool. If that were done, then I suspect you know, the, in, the acts of terror wouldn't necessarily stop this because it would be clear 
a decision, a fundamental decision had been made, both in words and in action. I think what we've seen in the last two days, yesterday there was a suicide bombing, today there were several acts as well. These are, in fact, already an early test of Abu Mazen and what he will do. He doesn't have a government yet, so he's not responsible yet. But they're deliberately designed to be a test, to measure what the response is going to be. He has to pass the test. He does, because, as I said, it is pointless to say to the Israelis, you've got to get out. Because even if we succeeded in getting them out, and then, then what you had was a torrent of suicide attacks in Israel, what you can guarantee is they'd be right back in. So the fact of the matter is, there is a test for Abu Mazen. But the Israelis have an enormous stake in his success. We have an enormous stake in his success. The Arabs have an enormous stake in his success. Therefore, we, the Israelis and the Arabs, have to take steps that make it more likely that he can succeed, but not as a substitute for what he does. Now, in answer to your second question, the people actually make that argument more than anybody else are Arab liberals. I mean, I've heard them say it's convenient to have the conflict because it allows them to deflect attention away. It creates an excuse for a certain organization of society. You know, we're at a point now where that's something we also ought to put to the test. I have a, I didn't talk about the sort of post-war agenda that we need in the region, but just as I believe we have to do something to defuse the Israeli-Palestinian issue, I also believe our focus has to be on promoting reform. I mean, we have, in the war on terror, there's no question we have multiple instruments and I think a number of things we do very well. Obviously, I think the way we use the military, we, we do very well. The way we do law enforcement, I think we do very well. Our intelligence, I think we do very well. I think our cutting of the financial flows to terrorist groups, we do as well as could be expected. But the one thing we haven't done is deal with hearts and minds. And in the end, in the war on terror, if you don't deal with hearts and minds, you can deal with all the immediate threats you face, but you're going to continue to produce this very large pool of people who are alienated, who are angry, who are hostile, and who are going to act on it in some way. Now, one way you deal with it is by demonstrating we don't have a double standard, meaning we don't use democracy only as a club against those we don't like, but never with those that we do like. And I'm not saying you want to go and somehow push some of your friends over the cliff. I'm not saying that at all. I'm also not saying that one size fits all. I don't even think that we can, you know, I said you can't impose reform, you can't impose reform, but you can stand for something. You can stand for tolerance, you can stand for rule of law, you can stand for accountability, you can stand for being against corruption, you can stand for women's rights, and you can make it clear when groups in countries that are our friends, like Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and there are such voices that are emerging, that we will support those voices. And we will especially support them if there is pressure put against them, or grasped, uh, if we have local groups that are trying, basically, to promote this. Regimes that have been our friends, need to know in private but also in public that we will stand for certain values and we will talk to them about how it's in their interest at least as far as we see it to expand the scope of participation in the end it's going to be their decision not ours but at least we have to be consistent in terms of what we say so I'll, I'll call on this side of the room in just a minute uh, but I as an old Soviet hand you may remember what we used to call merved questions which means, uh, for those of you who remember MERV missiles, well. <laughs> one question sort of becomes two or three. Please limit yourself to one so that we have as many chances as possible uh, to respond. There on the left. And then there. 
Yes, uh, Arthur Myram. Uh, uh, you use the term maneuver to, I think, to uh, uh, encapsulate your impressions of Arafat, uh, and you also raise the issue about. The, I, I'm still very, very puzzled about the the Clinton plan in that it had uh, uh, it had uh, four non-contiguous pieces, and no, I think you said that no, it did not. But yet I I, I have from people like Reverend Tobin at Christchurch at Harvard. Uh, you know, who's been there and, and knows that indeed the map is drawn does indeed have four distinct uh, separable parts that the Israelis would control. But my real question in that regard. Well, I have to respond uh, to that, though. I, I have to respond to that. Well, I, I will let you just a moment. I, I was you. allowed one question. <laughs> I, I was allowed one question. I want to get to it. Oh, so and you got to comment in a question. That has to do okay. with the Arab Jerusalem issue. Namely, therefore, is there not a definitional problem here of some sort? Is not, is not that. After all, Arafat was responding to the maneuverer, I think, Sharon's action in running up there with military troops on a military site. So does not Arab Jerusalem have to include some uh, historic religious sites? Uh, is not that really the bone of contention that, uh, for which he had every right to uh, reject the proposal? Thank you for your question. No, I mean it, seriously. Because I, the first thing's first. You know, what you're citing in terms of people who know I actually wrote the ideas, so I think I have a pretty good idea what they are. They don't know what the ideas were. Do you think that they were the negotiators? Look, let me explain something. We never presented a map, so the map you see is not an American map. We presented, well, you can raise your hand. Look, there's one way to understand things. What you saw in print did not represent the Clinton ideas. I'm telling you, this is very interesting because I had this experience one time before. I was told that I didn't know what the Clinton ideas were. Let me explain something. <laughs> How can I misrepresent what I wrote? You see, what you are is, let me explain what you have. What you have is a distortion of what we did. It's not perhaps, it's a fact, because what we presented was the following. We never presented a map, so what you're already presenting can't be ours. Others can say what they want, but the fact is, if you don't like the ideas, it's one thing. If you distort the ideas, it's another thing. We know what our ideas were. You know, when I said to, to one person who happened to be a Palestinian about the ideas, I said, you know, believe it or not, they were our ideas. They were not your ideas. They were our ideas. You don't like them, it's one thing, but at least face them as they are. There were not four parts, because the criteria that governed us was, in fact, the following. We said 4 to 6% annexation to accommodate settlement blocks for the Israelis in the West Bank and a 1 to 3% swap. We said the principle of contiguity had to guide how you would produce the net 97%. We made it clear we never said anything about roads. The maps that you have, I've seen the maps you have. And what those maps do is divide up the territory. We didn't do that. We didn't say one word about the roads. This is someone else attributing to us they were not at the table. They did not hear the ideas. They did not receive the ideas, but they've given their own interpretation based on what Arafat has said about them. Now, you can distort ideas. You can make up facts. You can repeat the facts, and you can believe the facts. But it's usually helpful to start with what the facts were. And the facts were we did not divide up the territory. We did not. The reason we used the principle of contiguity was precisely because we wanted to ensure that there would be integrity to the territory and it wouldn't be divided up. We knew, having heard from the Palestinians, the one thing that they couldn't tolerate 
would be parts of the area divided from the other. They needed to have a whole, not broken up. So that was the logic of what we presented. Now, in terms of your question about the religious sites, the Palestinians were going to be given, these are the exact words, sovereignty over the haram. That's the religious site. That's where the mosques are, up on top. That's what they were going to be given. Those were the exact words, sovereignty over the haram. The Israelis were going to be given sovereignty over the Western Wall and the holy space of which it's a part. So each side was going to get sovereignty over what was important to them. In the Palestinian case, it meant sovereignty over the whole platform, where the Alaska Mosque is, where the Dome of the Rock is. For the Israelis, it meant they would get sovereignty over the Western Wall, which runs basically below, most of which is submerged. The Israeli, the reality that's important to the Israelis is where the temple was. It's a dead reality in the sense that it's underground. For the Palestinians, it's a live reality. That's what we were offering. And the specific point on the religious sites, that was being addressed. Uh, my name is Javed Khan, and I'm a former fellow at Woodrow Wilson School. And I would just throw a very wild uh, solution uh, uh, to you, and that's that given that we are living in an age of imposition, because we were talking of preemptive strategy this morning, that whenever we feel like doing something, we go ahead and do it. And we have recently done it in Iraq. And in the recent conflicts in the Balkans, both in Bosnia and Kosovo, before they could become permanent, we went ahead, imposed a solution, and for the time being at least had a peace. So can we do the same thing, whether with UN or alone, go into occupied territories, throw out Israelis, and then bring them back in terms of establishing a Palestinian state and make it a viable option? Because you have said the history of conflict is that the only contact between the two parties is war and never a peace and conflict. So maybe they are ineligible for any peace process. Yeah, I, I'm not a believer that imposition works because I think in the, case of, in the case of trying to impose a peace between the Israelis and Palestinians, as I said, on the one hand, I think with regard to the Palestinians, it will relieve them of the need to assume the responsibility for what is there. My big concern, to be honest, is not only that it's you know, that if it's imposed, neither side will have a stake in it. By definition, they won't have a stake in it. It was somebody else's piece, not theirs. So at the first opportunity, they'll try to get out from under it. But also, you know, I'll give you an example of something. The Israelis withdrew from Lebanon in the year 2000, and the UN confirmed that their, with, with, their withdrawal was consistent with Security Council Resolution 425. Now, Afterwards, Hezbollah claimed they didn't withdraw from all of Lebanon. There's an area called Sheba Farms. And they said they should have withdrawn from that because that, that was governed by 425. It obviously was not. 425 was driven by an Israeli move into Lebanon, an incursion into Lebanon in 1978, and it was passed then. The Sheba Farms area was taken by the Israelis in the Six-Day War, and it was governed by Security Council Resolution 242. The reason I raise this is because what's going to happen if you try to impose something on the Palestinian side, there are going to be those who reject the imposition. Because one thing that's going to happen, there will be no right of return to Israel because there won't be a two-state solution then. Those who reject that will basically begin to find their Sheba farms, the equivalent of Sheba farms. Whatever they object to, they will oppose. 
And there isn't going to be a Palestinian leadership that says it's illegitimate to oppose this. So imposition, as far as I'm concerned, can't work. On the Palestinian side, I think it arrests the, the development of responsibility. On the Israeli side, I think the impulse to sort of say, we'll get out of this when we can, will also exist. Brady Kiesling, and I'll turn to the center. Um, Ambassador Ross, um, a hypothetical question. If, say, a year ago, Syria, Lebanon, and Iran had ceased to exist, what effect would it have had on the peace process and on the armed Palestinian uh, resistance to, um, to the Israelis? It's an interesting question. There is, you know, there were times in the past year, apropos your question, when there was a dialogue between Fatah that Abu Mazen led and Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Historically, the external Hamas and Islamic Jihad, which have been based in Syria, in Damascus, have been much more extreme than the internal Hamas. And the internal Hamas has been much more willing to accept at different points what might be the will of the Palestinian Authority. So. If that weren't to be the case, the real issue is, would it have made a demonstrable difference in terms of Hamas's behavior? Hamas is a different organization than Islamic Jihad. Neither one accepts Israel's right to be there. They both reject it. They both want an Islamic State. Hamas, however, has a social base, the Dawah, which is a critical part of their appeal. Islamic Jihad doesn't. Islamic Jihad is basically just, I would say, a terrorist organization and nothing else. The question is, if you didn't have the external, would it have made a profound difference in terms of what Hamas Islamic Jihad would have done? Maybe, because so much of the pressure to continue actions were coming from the outside, including, I would say, from at least the part of Iran, the Revolutionary Guard part of Iran, that continued to favor this. Hezbollah, Hezbollah has not been so active in terms of what it does practically militarily against Israel, but Hezbollah runs a satellite station called Almanar, which is a kind of cross between MTV and how to become a suicide bomber. And literally, 75% of their programming is there urging Palestinians to become suicide bombers, to get rid of Israel, to recognize that Israel is only a temporary presence and that they will do their Islamic duty by doing this. So if you didn't have that, would it create a climate that was better for peacemaking? Yes. Would it guarantee peace? No because you're still going to have to deal with what are the grievances. You're still going to have to deal with what are the claims. But in terms of creating a climate that might have been uh, more conducive to peacemaking, it probably would have made for a better climate, but I don't think it would have made for peace. They're in the back. You can just wait for the... Uh... Uh, over the past five years, and I think we talked about five years ago about economic development and the PA, one of the more discouraging things or developments I've seen is the radicalization of the Israeli body politic. Do you practically believe that Sharon or this government, which, which is, uh, has such a right-wing constituency, is either capable or willing to make even reasonable concessions along the lines of any roadmap or basis that could lead to a rapprochement with the Palestinians? Well. Just to be clear, you had, as I said, the most forthcoming government in Israel's history there until 2001. 
and they clearly had the support of the public. What happened was, in a sense, they got killed because the Intifada pretty much decimated them. Now, the question is, can this government, certainly given its constitution can, and how it's constituted, can it do the things that are required in the roadmap? It will certainly be hard for some of the elements of this government. It's hard to see this cabinet surviving as it is, given where someone like Lieberman is, as an example. Uh, if, in fact, for example, you were to go and dismantle the illegal settler outposts, I suspect that that would be taken as a sign that, you know, this is the opening wedge of what is going to be not just a freeze of settlements, but eventually evacuation. The reaction of Lieberman, among others, to Prime Minister Sharon's interview in Haaretz, where he talked about painful compromise, and he said he actually referred to uh, a few areas specifically that he gave as examples of where you might have to evacuate. That produced, you know, a very strong response. In fact, a series of meetings. So I'm, I'm dubious that if the government proceeds with the elements that are called for in the roadmap on the Israeli side, that the government as it's constituted will remain. But I also believe that the pressures on labor to join the government at that point would go up very high, and the odds are that labor would join the government under those circumstances. Yes, there. This microphone's coming this way. Uh, I'm a, an editor. Yes, my name is Ed Williams. I'm an editorial writer who has tried never to write on this topic. Uh, you may inspire me. Uh, for, for just for the reason of the complexity of, of just determining what the facts are. Spent so many years dealing with this, you, you out of optimism. I'd like to measure how optimistic you are that we will find not one horse in a manure pile, but four horses in manure piles and get them on the track toward peace. One to a hundred, with a hundred being absolutely dead certain it will happen, and being wholly unlikely that any of those horses will be found. Where would you rate your optimism? <laughs> I knew that story would come in handy. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna quantify, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you um, two reasons for why I feel uh, optimism in the near term and eventual longer term optimism. The first reason, in terms of the near term optimism, is what I said. Both sides know this has to stop. I mean, it's a disaster for both sides, and they understand it. Now, that's not a guarantee it's going to happen because the fact is there are plenty of those out there who will try to subvert it. But the, the recognition that it has to stop creates, for me at least, a sense that there's a decent possibility that we will at least get back to a peace process. I mean, I'm constantly asked, what do you think, whether this step will, how will affect the peace process? And I always say, there isn't a peace process now. There's a war process. I'd much rather have them talking to each other than killing each other. In the last two and a half years, that's all we've had. We haven't had them talking to each other. So the fact that they both know it has to stop is, gives me a level of encouragement. What I was trying to explain earlier is how to take advantage of the moment. If you don't reach some understandings directly by them, which I think we have to help them do, then you're going to find you don't take advantage of the moment. If you don't take advantage of the moment, then we're headed towards a longer-term reality. But now let me deal with why I feel in the longer term, and this may be, you know, 10 years. And unfortunately, when it comes to time in the Middle East, it's usually measured in blood. 
But in the longer term, there is a reality that is going to move us in the right direction, notwithstanding everything else, and that's demographics. By the year 2009, there are more Arabs than Jews between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. For Israel to retain its Jewishness and its democratic character, it can't stay in the territories. So at some point, you're going to see some adjustment to that reality. And that gives me some hope, number one. Number two, what gives me hope, and I, I don't think I mentioned this, but the mood among the Palestinians in terms of the violence has changed dramatically. Polls now show that 71% of the Palestinians want to see an end to the violence. This is the opposite. It was 71% in favor of it before, mostly because they were angry. And they were favoring those who would hit back at the Israelis. But now 71% favor an end to the violence. And that's been true for about the last three months. So it tells me that ultimately Palestinians as a whole know you've got to live with Israel. And those that I dealt with over the years, I knew that was the prevailing sentiment. And so I think the, the combination of the demographics, the recognition on the Palestinian side that ultimately violence isn't going to pay, that leads me to conclude that at some point we will get there. The problem is, will we be able to do it in a linear direction? Will we be able to do it through negotiations? That, I think, is up in the air. If we can't take advantage of this moment, I'm afraid what we'll see within a couple of years is unilateral disengagement by the Israelis, which will be a partial withdrawal. Uh, and unless one thinks ahead and thinks about how you might take advantage of that to create parallel unilateral moves, so that even if you're having unilateral moves, you can create some, at least implicit, understandings to create the conditions for peace after that, then you'll just prolong the time it takes to eventually get there. But I still remain hopeful that we'll eventually get there. We have time for two more questions. Ambassador Spears. Where's Steve? Right Uh, formerly of the State Department, I've had to go I know. a painful demurfing uh, project here. So instead of the four questions that I originally wanted to ask, <laughs> I want Yeah. This is not the picture that comes out of this. As far as I know, it will be. Your book does. I will order a few copies of it. So I would like <laughs> to comment on this issue. Yeah, I will. If you read, first of all, if you read Malley very closely, who's a good friend of mine and who worked on my team, what he doesn't ever dispute is the content. Read him very carefully. Go back and see it. What he disputes is the conclusion that Arafat's the only one to blame. He doesn't say that Arafat is blameless, but he says, well, everybody was to blame. And where I disagree on that is that in the end, Clinton and Barack were prepared to confront history and mythology, and Arafat was prepared to confront neither. The fact is, I will, uh, not only will I summarize in the text, but I'll include the points in an annex, so we'll see. You'll see... We deliberately didn't present a map because we were, we were providing guidelines for how to put the map together, but we wanted them to put the map together. We used the concept of contiguity and also the concept that the map had to be drawn in a way that ensured that the fewest number of Palestinians were incorporated into the areas that would be annexed by the Israelis. These were the two critical criteria guiding it. But it also guided it when it came to East Jerusalem as well because you're talking about eight Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem and you're talking about what are about 12 uh, Arab Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. 
And there are certain places, like especially where Shuafat is, and Nevi Yaakov, and Pishgadzev, where the line was going to have to be very complicated. And so we were focused entirely on contiguity, even as it related to that point. But you'll be able to look forward to seeing all that in the text. And I'll be quite happy to autograph copies for you, Ron. That's the missing piece. The last question. My name is David Fine, and I'm a Woodrow Wilson School alumnus. Um, Ambassador Ross, congratulations on your dog in this and infinite patience. Um, after 1919, when Michael Collins, who was then military head of the Irish Republican Army, negotiated a less than perfect settlement with the UK, he fought a civil war with his former colleagues who rejected uh, that agreement. Uh, that conflict took his own life, but ultimately the Irish Free State uh, right. prospered. And I don't think anybody would disagree that Ireland is better off for that. Similarly, um, after the creation of the State of Israel, Prime Minister Ben-Gurion turned his own guns on the Irgun when they were trying to import weapons because uh, own, the, 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 the state has to have the, the monopoly on the use of force. Right. Um, You've sort of danced around this subject a bit today, but I'm wondering at some point uh, will we not have to see such a confrontation in, among the Palestinians and possibly a, a civil war that would decide this? Uh, the short answer is if that's what it takes, yes. I mean, look, I wasn't meaning to dance around it. I was trying to direct it in a way that I think may be the most important you're never going to see a confrontation with those who reject peaceful coexistence if you don't delegitimize what they're doing. That's where it starts. Why did Arafat arrest but never say they were wrong? Because he wanted to preserve the option of never having to confront them over this issue. He wanted to preserve them as a group, which he did. One thing about Arafat is he never closes the door, he never forecloses an option. For those who say he planned the Intifada, it's simply untrue. He plans nothing. Everything is ad hoc. But he never closes the door. If you're going to make peace, the one thing that has to happen is the door truly has to be closed on those who reject peaceful coexistence with Israel and who are going to use violence. Look, if they want to be in the political spectrum and they want to argue their case, but they're never going to use violence, it's one thing. But if they're going to use violence as their tool, which they did repeatedly, then it has to be clear they're enemies of the cause. And that's the justification for confronting them. In the end, you won't avoid it. I will tell you one story. It'll be how we'll close. In, uh, in January of 1995, there was a, uh, a suicide bombing at a place called Beit Lit. And I was in Israel, and I, I went in to see Rabin. And outside his office was a complete madhouse, people scrambling around. And, and you know, there have been 19 people who have been killed. They're all between the ages of 18 and 21. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a disaster. And I came in and I saw Rabin, and he was sitting alone, and I suddenly walked from this, you know, this uh, vortex of activity to this very quiet scene. And, you know, this is a guy who was calm in the eye of the storm, and in his very low voice, he simply said, matter-of-factly, uh, there won't be peace until Arafat has his Altalena, which is what you were referring to. Now, for those of you who don't know the story of the Altalena, the Altalena took place in June of 48, when there was actually the first of several ceasefires uh, during the, the period of war. 
and there was an embargo on arms going in uh, to the Middle East. The Irgun brought in a ship from France that had 5,000 rifles on it and 250 light machine guns. And at the time, the Israeli Defense Forces in Israel were in desperate need of arms. But Ben-Gurion made it clear that there was going to be one authority, there weren't going to be parties or factions that had their own policy and their own weapons. He said, you don't turn the weapons over, we will take the weapons away from you. And in the course of ensuring that the ship was, in fact, not unload its arms, there was a military contingent that went down and confronted them. They sunk the ship, killed 40 members of the Irgun, and the leader of that military contingent was Yitzhak Rabin. So when he said that to me, it bore a certain history. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very struck that this morning uh, we spoke uh, at a level of uh, rhetoric and principle, a certain level of abstraction about uh, how we ought to think of, about morality uh, in foreign policy. We talked about a shared vision, uh, a vision that other nations uh, could buy into. We talked about the principles the United States sees itself standing for and how the rest of the world uh, perceives it. This afternoon, from someone who has been more directly involved than anyone I can think of in actually trying to make those ideals a reality, what we have heard is the extraordinary complexity and detail and tiny steps that are often required to make it work. And I, it, it is exactly the right combination, and I thank you very much for sharing this with us, and particularly at a time when we are all going to be watching this happen uh, in, we hope, uh, in the coming weeks and months, and we'll read the newspapers very differently for having listened to you. Thank you. Come back tomorrow morning uh, in, in this, uh, in Makash 10, Morality in American Democracy, Makash 46, The Nature of Good and Evil. Thank you, Matthew.